Welcome to the Volrath Feed, the show that brings you anything you ever wanted to hear about in the world of commercial food service. It has many areas to talk about, and we will literally try to cover them all. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the Volrath Company. And as always, joining me is our producer, Justin Pearson. Justin, how are you? Doing good. Thank you much. Excellent. Excellent. Hey, Justin, I did something in the opening on purpose, and I did it because I wanted to get your reaction to it. <laughs> yeah, I think I could pinpoint that. It was, uh, I, I noticed the difference. <laughs> so what I did was I used a term that is kind of one of those things when I hear it, I always seem to chuckle because I always think literally means exactly ex- what you're trying to say, right? Right. And, and in my case, I think I could probably make that argument. It has many areas to talk about. We talk about the food service industry and we will try to cover them all. So I could say in my mind, literally, I used it correctly. I would agree with you there. It, it, there's a defense for that. Right. So it's funny to me, though, when I listen to on television or people just talking, they'll say, you know, the, the sky was like literally falling. And <laughs> yeah. I, I get a chuckle out of it. I'm like, no, it wasn't, right? <laughs> like, right. I was literally blown away by that. No, you weren't. Yeah. <laughs> I literally just died. <laughs> yes, right. So I was thinking about our show today. We have an editor on today, right? Later on the show, we've got Joe Carbonera, who is the editorial director at uh, Food Service Equipment and Supplies Magazine. So it kind of got me thinking about, you know, journalism and using correct terminologies and things like that. So it just kind of got me down that path of, of words and literally just came to mind right away. <laughs> that, that that just phrase to me is one I always laugh about and my wife and I will watch TV and someone will say it and we'll look at each other and go, no, they didn't literally work their butt off or whatever, right? It's like, well, it, it brings up the argument of if people use a word in a way so often, does it change the meaning of the word? Is that how words evolve in, within our language? You know, very good because we, so today I was telling my wife about the show and what I was going to talk about and she said, you know, they've actually changed the word, the meaning of the word literally. And so she brought it up and-, and Wait, wait, who, who, who's they? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, she found an article, I think, on the BBC or so. She found it somewhere. I, of course, she found it on Google. So it is fact. It has to yeah, be. Well, yeah, there you go. It has to be. <laughs> but that, so I did a little research further. And there are a bunch of words that over time, the meanings have changed. And some of them I, I'm kind of surprised at. and I, I shouldn't say maybe surprised, but it, it, when you think it through, it, it makes you wonder a little bit, right? So one of the ones I, I really thought was interesting was awful. Awful. The word awful. Yeah. Today's world, awful means terrible, bad, mm-hmm. dreaded. It's just terrible. But if you think of the word awe, you're in awe of something, totally means something other than awful. That That's correct. You're right? Like, awesome. Right. You know? Yeah. So that root of awe and the term awesome, as you said, and awe in old world English, it morphed into something as a solemn or reverential wonder and awful. And, but before that it was fear, terror, or dread. So awful has had both meanings over time, I guess. I wonder what the popular reference was that changed the whole future and outlook for that word. I wonder at what point it became known as what we use it today. And where, where that transformation happened. Yeah, I don't know. And, and you're right. Popular cultural phrases like flirt. Flirt once meant a sudden, sharp movement. Hmm. So it was a, to flirt was a sudden, sharp movement. The original verb sense was to give someone a sharp blow was a flirt. Like in combat or battle, I wonder? I guess so, a sharp blow. Hmm. And then obviously later took on more of a playful, cheeky meaning, which is what we refer to flirt today. You think about the word bad. Yeah, that has, even even today, mm-hmm. it has good and bad connotations depending right. on its context and how it's used. Right, <laughs> right. I wonder how long that's been going on with that word. Uh, I don't know. I guess I remember as a kid using, oh, that's bad. Yeah, I remember, I guess occasionally I still do use it. It's like, oh, that's that's badass, you know? that. Right. But it's not like we say, oh, that's good ass in contrast. No. <laughs> <laughs> Correct, but, correct. But cool. I mean, that's a word that seems timeless to Very me. Very good. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's when when did cool become cool to use as cool, you know? Yeah. When did it become cool, meaning that it was good and exciting and interesting or whatever, right? 
You know, Rich, I'd, I'm really looking forward to talking to Joe about writing and producing. I, I was a journalism major and found my way into radio for a while, writing and producing news stories for, uh, yeah, my beat was Cops and Courts. And No kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did that for a while and uh, I really enjoyed it. And then like somebody flicked a switch, I got burnt out on it. I think that happens to a lot of people in the news industry. Like literally where, flip the switch? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, m- magazines have had to evolve yeah. quite rapidly, too. I mean, as, as everybody has with advancements in, in the Internet and how people consume their media, it's either you, you adapt and adjust or you don't survive because mm-hmm. competition is just too brutal. I don't. I don't rarely read a printed newspaper, and I used to love the printed paper. I used to yeah. go against online because mm. I didn't like reading it on a little tablet. Mm-hmm. But then um, my local paper became such a, I don't know, the front. We could have landed a man on the sun, and our paper would talk about the 15 pound tomato some lady grew on the front page. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. So I kind of got away from our local paper and started lo- reading online. And now, you know, I, I read articles in the in, online, obviously, and then Sunday's paper comes out, and it's just a rehash of what I read four days ago, so I don't even bother mm-hmm. to read it. I, I used to love reading magazines, too. Something about a magazine felt special because of the paper it was printed on, and you have that really high gloss, and it felt like uh, more of an experience than opening up a newspaper or some other form of print, and... That transition has happened rapidly with me as it has with millions and millions of other people where we just, it's too easy and to use your, your phone or your computer or your iPad or whatever, and, and it's much, much more in depth. I've, I've found, I've actually, I've literally made the mistake <laughs> of reaching into Pinch and Zoom on some article or something like that or something printed. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I'm I'm an idiot. I'm in too deep. <laughs> what am I doing? I'm trying to zoom in on something that's uh, and it's analog. I've done it like on a computer screen or something. That's you know, yeah. <laughs> lose your lose your spot for a second there. I, I think I should really start to worry if I start doing it with real life items. You know, like can of soup. You're trying yeah. to read the instructions <laughs> read, on the, <laughs> or the ingredients <laughs> on a can of soup. You're zooming out. <laughs> then it's probably time to get some help. Yeah, yeah, I think with uh, trade magazines, so that's they still have their place there, right? Because news is is very timely, but publications that deal with a topic like a trade magazine, like food service equipment and supplies, you're you're getting that once a month, and that has articles that are not going to be on the headline news, right? So those are that's where right. that retains its uh, readership and. Relevance. Yeah, it moves at the pace of the industry, I would say. Yeah, that's a good way to say it, right? And Timely. anything that moves faster, they they can augment and enhance with their with their social and online presence. Mm-hmm. Big changes in the restaurant industry generally aren't happening overnight. Correct. Sans everything COVID related. I was just going to say, except for <laughs> uh, in our case here in Wisconsin, uh, March 16th. Yeah. Or 17th with... Uh, the the food literally was in the oven for St. Patrick's Day at three o'clock in the afternoon, and the pin got pulled on dinner that night. So mm-hmm. that's how fast things happen there, right? Yeah, and they do a good job of um, bringing in topics, comparing product types. And I was going to bring an issue at home. I keep them at work, but uh, they do a nice job with the the articles that they the uh, stories that they run. They're interesting. They're timely with with what's going on in our industry. If it's water conservation, energy conservation, staying on top of food trends, you know, those are all, all good things that uh, they do a nice job of. So, well, maybe we should just jump ahead here and get right to our guest today. We have, um, as I mentioned, Joe Carbonera, who's with us from Food Service Equipment and Supplies Magazine, which is a publication for the food service industry and talks all about the equipment and issues affecting the industry. So let's welcome Joe to the show. Joe, welcome to the Volrath Feed. Thank you, Chef Rich. And thank you, Justin, for having me today. It's our pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to, to join us. And I, I think a, a good place to start for our listeners that... Um, uh, don't understand maybe the differences between your two publications. If you could just kind of tell us a little bit about each and the kind of the market they focus on or where the the focus lies, that might give us a good start. 
Sure. The publication I think everyone's probably most familiar with is Food Service Equipment and Supplies. It's a 70-year-old publication, and as our clever name implies, we focus on everything but the food. So basically, we look at the journey from the food from the moment it gets to the back door till it goes out into the plate on the dining room or maybe into the third-party delivery driver's meal bag or, or something to that effect. Um, and our readers are multi-unit operators, which, you know, obviously chain restaurants, right? But also multi-concept operators uh, like Let Us Entertain You, for example, and Darden and those kinds of folks. We also have, uh, when we say multi-unit, we also refer to non-commercial. When we say non-commercial, that means any food service operation um, that happens in a place where the main reason you're there is not to eat. So think, for example college and university food service, right? I think that's a that's a real big one. You go there to mm -hmm. learn. And mm -hmm. They have multiple points of service on their campuses. Healthcare, you go there to get healthy and get better. They have multiple points of services on, on their campus. School food service, um, you know, as well. Districts have multiple points of feeding. And of course, my favorite multi-food service, multi-unit food service operator is none other than our good friends in correctional food service, right? <laughs> they're, they're kind yeah, of understated. They have a different purpose um, for sure. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's, uh, the brands and circuses are a big part of that. Uh, we also have food service equipment and supplies dealers that are readers, uh, food service uh, consultants, designers, and MAS consultants are also part of um, our readership as well. So we have a variety of folks there. And basically, we our readers recommend, specify, or purchase food service equipment and supplies. And they all work collaborative, collaboratively um, on laying out the kitchen setting up the tabletop, setting up points of service, and, and kind of everything, all points in between. Our other publication, uh, the sister publication, is Restaurant Development Design Magazine. And this is really more of a form meets function kind of a conversation. So how are you designing um, how, how are you designing the space so it delivers on the brand promise to get functions effectively and efficiently? How are you designing it so you're creating a warm and inviting environment for people that want to eat on premises, but maybe for people that want to take it and go, they can have just as good an experience getting in and getting out. So this is how we're looking at things like the flow. You're looking at things like how you're allocating dining, how do you structure outdoor dining? What's it? How do you make it pretty, but still really function the same way? Our readership within that group. Um, our readership within that group includes restaurant development professionals, you know, at different you know, chain restaurants and, and such, architects, restaurant designers, uh, people who are real experts in branding as well. You know, those are all part of the, the conversation there because those groups all have to work collaboratively. And that's really what we try to do with that publication, really kind of create a platform that, that creates discussion amongst those groups so they can share ideas, best practices, trends, and the like. How many end users do you get that uh, will look at that publication, the uh, restaurant development design? Because I would think if you're an end user and you're thinking about how do I, you know, even begin to think about improving my space, do you get uh, inspiration ideas from that magazine or do you have a lot of that readership? For sure. Yeah, we get a lot of, a lot of end users. So the, the end user in that case will it'll take the form of like someone, for example, that works at a, at a like, well, let's take a look at chain restaurants, for example. You know, one of the things that we noticed when launching this magazine a few years ago was that we noticed that at the chain restaurant level, there are a lot of people there from menu and a lot of people from marketing. And those are really important things, no doubt. But we also noticed that the person that was in charge of developing the restaurant, designing it and so forth, they were often kind of working alone or one or two person teams. So that's why we created this publication. So they could talk to people in other organizations that were doing similar jobs, for example. Um, so I think from, from an end user perspective, I think there's a lot to use in there, but there's a lot to learn in there. And we really try to give the end user a strong presence and a strong voice within that, within that publication. What are they seeing? What are they doing? How are they rising to the, to the, to the challenges of the day? So that includes multi-unit. I think there's some independents that are in there. And a lot of times they'll turn to branding consultants or design consultants to figure out how to do it because as you guys know, when you're working with, you know, restaurateurs, a lot of them have a passion to serve or a great culinary vision, but it's a little bit more complicated whether you're trying to, um, when, when you're trying to translate that vision into a beautiful front of the house that you can mm -hmm. afford and that's functional or into a kitchen that uh, is, is functional as well. Right. And that's where I was thinking, like my background is, is independence and uh, those exactly as you described, these are people that got into the business and they had that vision and that passion for the culinary side. But some of this other stuff just is, it's not in their wheelhouse, right? So those types of things, just looking and getting ideas and inspiration as a small independent mom and pops, um, all those people look at this stuff as, as ways to see what's coming, see what's trendy. And, and I'm one of those people as well that I'll look at something, oh, I like that. 
or I, I don't like it, but it, I have to see it in that way to, to understand it where some people have a different vision. Yeah, we try to, you know, one of the things that we try to do is we try to explore different markets. So we have a, we have a section in each issue that we call design market. You know, in each issue of our D&D, we have a section called design market. And what we do with design market is it's a chance for uh, us to go to St. Louis or Seattle or New Orleans and explore three or, you know, here's images for three or four new restaurants that just opened up. Um, you know, and kind of draw on their, their inspiration. We have another section called Worldview, where we try to take, uh, some pictures from restaurants that were in other parts of the, con- other parts of the globe, I should say, and, and show things that just opened and, and how they're doing it. Um, and then we have another area in the magazine called Designers Dish, where we don't go to the operators, but we go to the, um, the dis- restaurant designers and have them talk about some of their favorite trends or latest items and things that they're seeing. Um, or that they're using in their designs a little bit more to help um, meet their customers' goals. So we're doing it in a few different ways. There's a bunch of different ways you can kind of look at it, um, and it's, it makes it kind of interesting. And, and your your publications, you write most of your stuff yourself, right? Or if not all, or how how much of it do you write yourself? I mean, in terms of how we write it, yes. Do you do you go out to get outside writers that contribute, or do you have their staff do the the stories? And the articles. So what's interesting about our company is that we have two publications um, and we publish FNS 12 times a year. We publish RD&D six times a year. And then we do some supplements and then we have all of our online, you know, our newsletters and our webcasts and that sort of thing. But we only have um, we only have four full time editors that work with us and we're producing some pretty big magazines and generating some some decent volumes of content. So we, we have a network of contributors that, that live around the country. Um, you know, New York, Seattle, uh, Florida, um, North Carolina, you know, Chicago for sure. Um, we're, we're based out of the suburbs of Chicago. So we have people from all over really that, that we work with on a regular basis. Um, and they're really, really, they're helpful. Um, they, they also become in some respects, our eyes and ears out into the community because, just with the four of us trying to do it, there's, there's no way we could, but we're lucky to have a nice veteran pool of writers. I do write quite a bit. Um, okay. so I personally do write quite a bit. Um, you know, in, in the current issue, but the July, August issue of our D and I do have a story on, you know, the future of, you know, the future is now, I think is what we called it. And the future of, on, we looked at on-premise dining and in the future of restaurants moving forward. And that was really important. So I'm very active. I am actively writing. As a matter of fact, since COVID-19 came around, I've been writing like I was a reporter fresh out of college again. <laughs> um, it's been crazy, the, the amount of stuff that, that we've had to write. Um, so, yeah, I, I do I write quite a bit, for sure. Good. I would tend to think that anybody who decides to come out with anything print nowadays is taking a considerable gamble. So you must have done some really serious market research to identify your audience and and come to the conclusion that this will be something they benefit from. Of course, everybody augments with online, but what, how did you get to the decision to come up with a new magazine? So developing restaurant development design, um, we kind of did it the old-fashioned way, and we did that by listening. Uh, we'd been to some conferences. We had talked to the restaurant developers, the guys who are in charge of director of construction, director of development, director of design for various chains and, and some other concepts and, and, and listening to them talk about their day to day and what they needed and what was missing in the market. We came to the realization that there was no publication or nothing out there that was, that was fulfilling. That. So we decided to launch a publication and we knew that it wouldn't have at the beginning, we knew it wouldn't have the 12 month presence in print like FENS does. But our DD does have a solid six month presence. You know, we do it every other month in print and then we're doing twice monthly newsletters online and a robust webcast platform as well. So we're doing plenty in print and online. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, kind of what I think the hybrid model would be going, going forward. I think at the end of the day, when you're at work, you know, we all spend so much time at our jobs, staring at our, our computer screens, mm-hmm. staring at our tablets, staring at our, at our phones and, and that sort of thing. I think at the end of the day, when you're looking for inspiration, it comes in a lot of forms. And there's still a strong market when you're talking in the business to business marketplace for people that like that serendipity of, of being able to pick up a publication and kind of lease through it and just see what catches their eye, what, what strikes their fancy and, and move from there. All that information is available to them online as well. So if they want to go in and they want to 
copy that link. We hope they do it and they email it to all their friends and family and their uh, coworkers or whoever else might need to see it. So we do, you need, do need to have a balance, I think, of both in print and online, but we find, we're finding solid demand across both titles for, for print these days. It definitely takes uh, the right content to warrant putting it in print. And I mean, you get beautiful photography and well-written articles. And, and like you said, it's nice to uh, kind of switch off from the screens and get something analog in your hands. And I was talking with Rich earlier about how I find myself occasionally trying to zoom in on something <laughs> that, that wasn't meant to be zoomed in on. And I, I just have a moment to myself of uh, mild insanity. But but it is, it is refreshing to to be able to to look and hold and feel it in your hands and and appreciate it. Um, I don't want to say it's nostalgic, but you know it, it kind of is in a way. Yeah, I, I I think you're in some ways. I think you're right. I also think too that you know look at technology over time. Um, you know when you know when when the radio was invented, we thought the newspaper was going to be gone, and when the newspaper and when you know TV came along, we thought the radio was going to be gone, and they're all still here. Mm-hmm. You know, some maybe not as strong or maybe doing things a little bit different than others. Um, but we're all we're all still mostly here. I still get the newspaper delivered and enjoy reading it for some of the reasons we talked about here. But I think that I think that there's there is a bit of a place for print. I think when you take a step back and look at marketing, for example, you know, when people are trying to market a company or trying to market an event, everyone thinks it should just be social media, it should just mm-hmm. be online, it should just be print. At the end of the day, if there was one magic bullet, we'd all shoot it. So right. the way we all want to look for inspiration or information on how to further along our careers, I think, you know, we're all going to be a little bit different and we're all going to find it in, in different ways. Um, in the B2B marketplace, we found that for highly focused niche publications, which is what both of our publications are, there's still plenty of, there's plenty of demand for print. So um, our, our approach as a company is we're really platform agnostic. We don't care if you consume our information in print. We don't care if you consume it online. We just want you to consume our information. Mm-hmm. In the magazine where you feature products, I know we've we've had a lot of our products in your magazines, and we appreciate the the, the time it give, you give us in there. And um, how how do you handle it though? If you if you have uh, products and ads and uh, manufacturers that uh, do you ever have those those discussions or has that ever been an issue with a manufacturer that didn't get a great placement or didn't get the most favorable press or does that ever come up and is that an issue? I always wonder that sometimes when you have advertising and then you have products you're featuring and how does that balance work? So we have we have a strict wall between sales and editorial. You know our. Our magazines are able to. Our magazines are able to function because we we promise the reader that we're going to deliver them uh, an unbiased, comprehensive editorial, you know, content experience, content-driven experience. And as a result of that, you know, they agree to sign up for the magazine. And then the our promise to the advertisers are that we're going to keep delivering that content-rich experience to our readers, and we're going to deliver you as an advertiser some you know qualified eyeballs of people who can have a say in making a purchase on your product. So the really good advertisers really understand that and, and they won't, they understand the, the importance of having that wall between sales and editorial um, and making sure that, that, that we keep it that way. Cause I mean, our ethics are, there's so many pay for play options out there these days. You know, we really have to, we really have to mind our P's and Q's in that area. You know, in terms of how we find products, for example, in the back of the book, you know, trade shows, conferences, conversations with people. Um, there are products that we get that don't fall into our scope of coverage for sure. Um, people will send us stuff that, you know, that, that our guys, you know, hey, we have this great new thing on WeChurn. Well, none of our readers specify WeChurn. That's not why we're here. So we're not going to write about, we're not going to write about that. But if somebody comes back and they have um, some new tongs or a new combi oven or some new, a new line of China or anything like that, if we feel it's new and, it, and it's relevant, uh, in the minds of our readers, then we we will we will absolutely share that. In the back of the book, you know, we rely on product spec sheets from manufacturers and, and photography from manufacturers, but we choose and we pick the features and functionality that we highlight that we think are going to be most impactful. Um, and we strip out. You'll notice we strip out all the hyperbole, you know, in there. Um, best ever, only one of its kind, coolest thing since canned beer, you know, that sort of thing. We take all that sort of stuff out. 
um, and really kind of focus on what's in it for me. You know, if, if I'm a reader, that's what I'm asking. What's in it for me? So we try to answer that question for them in as uh, succinct way as possible, and then provide way provide a place where they can or a way that they can go back to the manufacturer to find out more information. The other thing is we don't really want to we don't really want to put products in the magazine that our readers can't get. So mm. one of our you know our qualifications for getting stuff for running a product in the back of the book is it has to be available in the market. So if you're not shipping it yet, we don't want to run it on our pages just yet. Sometimes we do get information for products that are going to launch, let's say in September, but I'm not going to run that until October just so I know that people can get it. Because what's worse than getting all excited about seeing something in a, in a magazine that I can't they can't go buy it. The other thing, talking about our editorial integrity a little bit, is you'll notice if you read our magazine, if you read, you notice the center part of the book where we're focusing on projects or trends or different things like that. We never interview manufacturers for that. Because if you interview one manufacturer, you got to interview, you know, all. So we're writing about, you know, fryers or this or that, you know, and that sort of thing. And and if you interview one, you kind of need to interview them all. And, And that's not a good thing. The other thing is, and I think the more important reason behind that is that, you know, people are so, their antennas are tuned in for pay to play opportunities. And one of the things that, that we don't, we don't do is pay for play. So if I put, you know, if a company A is exhibiting, you know, advertising in the magazine, we want to advertise because they, they value the content, the relationship with the readers, not because it happens to be a project that they're, that they're featured in or something like that. Cause I think it just kind of erodes it. When you do that sort of thing, I think it kind of erodes it at your integrity. Now, over the years, we've had great, we have great, relationships with our manufacturer partners, um, you know, that, that support us through advertising and in other ways. Um, they've done, I think, tremendous jobs of tipping us off to potential projects, you know, that we might want to write about, or here's a customer that's doing something really good. But then it's our process. We go through and vet it. And if it works for us and we think, if we think it, meaning we think it works for our reader, then we write about it. But even then, that manufacturer tipped it off to us, they're not going to be listed in there as well. So we really try to we really try to be Switzerland in this. Is, do you find it more challenging to uphold your integrity now in the days of uh, clickbaitiness? And h- how do you avoid those pitfalls there? That's a great question. Um, you know, in this era of pay for play and click driving clicks and that, and that sort of thing, it's, a, it's rough. You know, um, there's a lot of guys who, there's a lot of publishing companies who will call, you know, they'll call restaurant A and say, you know, hey, Justin, you guys have, we're doing a whole thing on, you know, baked French toast. And I understand you're the greatest, you know, baked French toast in the Midwest. And we'll write a story about you if we can sell $10,000 worth of ads against your story. So give me a list of all your vendors. That just makes my job so hard. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, because I have to go through and, and let them know that, I'm, we're reaching out to them as a publication because we think they're cool, because we think they're doing something truly innovative. And all we really want is to be able to share their stories so they can help educate others in the industry about how they're doing it. In terms of, you know, online and like the clickbaiting stuff, and there are publications who are sending out dozens of emails every day. Mm-hmm. We really try to be respectful of our readers' times. Uh, we try to be descriptive in our headlines and descriptive and to the point in anything that we write. Um, whether it's a new hire coming in um, or, or, or that's that sort of thing. Um, it is in the age of COVID right now and some of the clickbaity stuff, it can get challenging from time to time to rise above the white noise. Mm-hmm. But we're kind of relying on the fact that with FNS, it's a, you know, it's a 70 year old publication that uh, has great and longstanding relationships with its readers and our D and D, you know, we became from the minute we launched that publication, you know, we don't have subscribers or readers. We have fans. You know, that magazine hits the streets and our editors are getting emails and, and, and letters saying, that was really great. I love it. Thanks for this. Thanks for that. I saw that. I agree. You know, our, our engagement with our readership on both sides is really off the charts, which is awesome. So in that same vein, over the years, how has the editorial tone and voicing changed and, and modified with the times? Um, is it pretty much the same style as it was 70 years ago or how, how is that that morphed so that you preserve um that integrity you know our voice and our approach is pretty much stayed consistent because i feel it's a formula that works um you know we're maybe where it's changes we're trying to be a little bit more engaging and a little bit more conversational um when we're working with social media you know working across our different platforms i think that way 
Um, I think that the recipe, whether it's writing content for your website or, or writing content for your publication, I don't think that's changed. You know, be, you have to be, you have to be honest and ethical in your approach. You have to be long enough in, in writing your piece that, that you tell the story completely and short enough so they don't fall asleep. And you have to have mm-hmm. your finger on the pulse of what your readers really want. And yeah. if we're doing those things, then it doesn't matter. You know, we can we can stay pretty consistent. We, we've added some Q&A things over the years, um, just some shorter hit kind of stuff to kind of involve um, within both publications. But, you know, our voice has always been active. It's always been positive. You know, that sort of thing. Um, for us, that's always been really important. Awesome. Yeah. It's something that can be challenging to preserve. You know, Rich, Rich and I, were, we were discussing earlier about how words have changed meaning over over the centuries, even, and just how they evolve. And Literally, and, for example, was a word that at yeah. one time meant exactly what you said, and now it's been changed to allow it to be a metaphor or other ways that people right. use words and just constantly changing, right? Yeah. It is. You know, we we do have now. That said, we have a style guide that we use for each publication. Mm-hmm. The audiences in each publication are a little bit different, so we have style guides that we develop and we maintain in house, and it, it constantly gets going. Our other, we have a couple of the other editors really get into it. I'm like, just update it, send it to me, and I hope to remember most of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I just I just I just try to read everything from perspective. If I was a reader. Um, what would I want to hear? What would I want to know about this topic? Or, you know, we, even when we do our webcasts, you know, our webcasts have been doing really well lately. Then we really try to structure the conversation. Of if I was someone sitting at my desk, eating a ham sandwich, listening to this webcast, what would I want to know? You know, how do you, how do you approach that? Right. So that's, right. And we structure those presentations that way and we get really good. We get good engagement with those as well. Speaking of what your readers want to hear, uh, one of the things you always put out is the forecast, the 2020, 2021 forecast and so forth. Well, the 2020 forecast went out the window in <laughs> March. And how how soon, I mean, or how willing are you to start thinking about 21? I mean, is that something you're you're working on? Are you still waiting and, and seeing? Or how, how do you start beginning to think about putting that together? It's funny you should ask that because our survey for the 2021 forecast, both the dealer and the operator survey are in the field right now. Oh, okay. um, so we are definitely that's that's out there right now, um, you know, and we're getting some traction. We're getting some traction on that. I think there's some hesitancy in talking to a few people that they're like, well, I don't know what next week is going to look like, much right. less, you know, next year. I'm like, well, I'll just take the best best approach you can, because all, all those surveys really do is kind of take the temperature of where you are at a specific point in time. So. Yeah, you're right. Like last year's boy, by before St. Patrick's Day, we were already lined in the birdcage with last year's because who the hell knew what was going to happen next, right? Um, and, and I think next year will be a little bit different too. You know, when, yeah. when the whole, I remember when my children, um, you know, they were going to come home from school. It was going to be two weeks. And that was uh, before St. Patrick's Day in March. Guess what? They're still here. And I'm not sure if they're going, they've told us they're going back in a couple of weeks, you know, when school starts, but who knows? Uh, the way cases are rising and the way governments are doing different stuff. Um, it's, it's crazy. So, so you don't really know, but we're trying to get some type of outlook in place. Um, and the other thing that we try to do is we try and balance our own, the data we collect from our readers with perspectives from, you know, well-respected folks within the industry, you know, whether that's from data company, you know, uh, market research companies like NPD group, for example, you know, very, they've been great partners with us. Uh, companies like Data Central, we get a lot of good, in, you know, feedback from them, and and we have a good relationship with the National Restaurant Association. And their chief economist is a gentleman by the name of Hudson Reilly, and Hudson's um, an amazing resource um, for the industry. Uh, so we try to leverage them and kind of balance, you know, take what they're what those analysts are saying and hold it up against what our readers are saying and try and come up with some thoughts. So yeah, we're we're working on it right now. Okay, interesting. Well, one of the things that was affecting our industry was labor. And I know that, um, you know, now with closings and, and people being out of work, I wonder how that's going to change. But one of those was a, re- a result of that was uh, one of the articles I was reading about robots in the kitchen, something you featured. Uh, do you still see that as, as a trend that we're going to see robots in the kitchen to reduce labor costs? Is that still something you're thinking is, is a trend or interesting type of product to look at for an operator? 
You know, it's interesting. Um, we all thought by now, you know, I'm in my 50s. So I grew up watching the Jetsons and they're probably in reruns by them. But we all thought by now we'd be in our spaceship cars and Rosie the Robot would be making us dinner every night. And she's nowhere to be found. Um, she's probably <laughs> smart. She's probably social distancing and isolating, you know, so to stop the spread <laughs> of the virus. But, you know, to answer, you know, to answer your question, you know, why hasn't it happened? I think one of the, one of the reasons why it hasn't happened is, is function of cost. You know, the ROI right now for restaurant operators, you know, when they make significant investments in technology and equipment, you know, they, they, they want pretty quick ROIs. You know, in most cases, it's less than two years. And these robots are pretty expensive. So I think that's I think that's one reason. I think the second reason we haven't seen too much of it is hospitality. You know, this is restaurant and food service at its core is hospitality. You know, you're making someone feel warm and inviting and you're nourishing them both through your approach and through the plate of food that, that you provide them. And, and there's a certain sterility to, to, to robots. Um, now, that said, robots, you know, in certain applications can, you know, where they're highly, they're volume applications and they're highly repeatable. You know, robots, I think, can can play a, a big role for some operators moving forward. But it's got to be really the right right situation. You know, we're seeing the salad making robots that are out there right now and they're picking up steam. But the funny thing is, is people are talking about them like they're new. Well, that's technology that's three or four years old. You know, I saw mm-hmm. a restaurant show, I want to say 2017, but I don't know if that date's exactly correct. But my point is this. This has been around for a while, and now we're starting to see it. And what's interesting is that they're using it not in a way that anybody ever thought that they would. They're using it almost as like a micro outlet, you know, micro site kind of a thing. You know, uh, we're seeing some salad chains place it in, in, in stores and other areas where it would be kind of harder for them to get to. I do think that we're seeing some forms of automation pop up, uh, specifically in the form of vending. Um, you know, there's... Uh, um, I can't think of the name of the company out of Chicago here, Fresh Market or Fresh Choice. Uh, I forget the name, but they have great, like they make healthier, better for you food options. And they have stuff at O'Hare and they have their hotels and some different, even in office buildings here in Chicago. And you swipe your credit card and you pick the salad or the wrap or the snack that you want. And it comes to you in a recyclable jar. So it's really cool. You know, it's quality food. You're getting it quick. Uh, it's it's good for you, and you can even recycle or compost at the end. So it's kind of a cool thing. So I think we're seeing automation pop up in some places. Most recently, um, White Castle has uh, said that they're going to start testing robots again this fall. Mm-hmm. Um, they're working with a company out of California. The robot is called Flippy. Um, <laughs> and to some of your listeners, Flippy may sound familiar because Flippy was uh, there, there was a burger chain that had Flippy the burger. You know, burger flipper, um, but that chain ended up going out of business. But White Castle is going to give it a shot. But again, it's it's got to convey that message of you know warm hospitality and deliver that ROI for it to really have a chance to stick. Well, if it's back of the house, and and I think it's just a a function. But my take on some of these is if they're not fast enough. If you if you need something done quickly, a, a robot's just not going to be the way to get it done for a fresh type. Uh, burger, for example, making twenty sal or hundred salads. If you've got more time to do it, and it can be packaged and and used later as a grab and go, that maybe has some application. But you're, but you're one hundred percent right in the whole hospitality side. We're never going to accept someone or a, an arm to kind of give us our, our food at the counter. We want a person. We want to see someone, right? Well, I yeah. think it's a novel enough idea that people would go initially. They would flock to it as a gimmick type of thing, you know, like as an experience, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, it would take a long time. And at the speed at which food industry moves, sometimes that's why you're seeing things come out later, uh, even though the technology's been around. Um, early adopting something has a lot of risk involved with it, especially in technology, especially in something as expensive as robotics. You know, it's interesting. There's, there's been a few interesting examples that I think got a lot of attention because of it, the curiosity factor. So there's one, um, there's a concept called Cafe X out in the Silicon Valley. And they have locations, they had some locations, and these were robotic arms making coffee and espresso drinks. And you would order on your phone before you got there, or they had a tablet in the lobby, and you'd punch in the tablet what you wanted, and it would make your drink. And then they even put a couple locations, uh, there's one in this, there's only, they put a couple locations in airports, one in the San Jose airport, and one in the San Francisco airport. And out of all the locations that they had, those are the only two locations that the airport locations are the only two more that are still there. Hmm. Um, so people look 
and, and they went and, and they were interested for a while, but then they kind of went away from it, which I thought was, which, which I found fascinating because I figured if it was going to stick in any one geographical market, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be Silicon Valley? Yeah, you know, exactly. Where people are the early, right? That's where the early adopters are. So I think, you know, it's, it's interesting in, in leading up to COVID prior to COVID, um, the whole industry, whether you were healthcare or whether you were college or you were a for-profit restaurant, it didn't matter. Everybody was really into delivering a great experience for their guests, right? The quality plate of food, making it customizable, the whole nine yards, that, that was why. What really got you that return business and that loyalty was providing great experiences. Now, in the era of COVID, we've kind of gone in a completely different we, We've gone back. We've rolled that all back. Mm-hmm. So now it's really super transactional. How fast can I get you in? Can I get you out? And can I do it in a manner where you're safe and where you not only are you safe, but you have to feel safe, mm-hmm. you know, when, when I'm doing it. And, and, and I think that's that's a really interesting thing because to see how this is going to play out as we move forward is just going to be fascinating because we've really, really become transactional. You know, I, I, I like Starbucks. I like to go get their coffee once in a while. Um, sometimes I like to take my laptop and go sit in a Starbucks. Well, guess what? I'm not doing that. I'm not going to sit in a Starbucks anytime soon. I do believe that they've done a good job of making it feel safe and, and do all the things they're supposed to do, but I don't know that I'm ready to do it yet. And from the judging of things, I, I see people going through there buying their cups of coffee, but I don't see anybody really lingering very often anymore. So what yeah. we, as we, as we start to put this pandemic behind us and it will happen eventually, they all get behind us at some point. You know, are we still going to be super transactional? We're going to get back to that experience, developing that that sense of community um, that, that I think is one of the great things that food service provide, has provided for so long. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see what happens after. I mean, we'll get back. There are people of people enjoy getting around a table and talking. I'll tell you, right now it's hard. Wisconsin has just implemented the mask for a statewide in the indoor space. And just trying to converse with someone with a mask on is so difficult. But as that goes away, we'll get back into it. And I think safety has been one of those things that has been on the rise. People have become more conscious of it. So I think we'll always have a heightened sense of it going forward. But that's maybe not the worst of things, just as long as we don't take away that personal experience that we have of sitting together and talking and enjoying enjoying a meal together. Well, to me, that's been one of the worst things about this, you know, okay, outside of the obvious stuff, the illness and the people dying, I don't want to ever brush over that. But as, as we've dealt with our struggles, you know, there are millions of people who are losing their jobs, you know, who are out of work in, in that sort of thing, or we are worried about loved ones or that sort of thing. In the past, when the recession hit or 9-11 hit or whatever, you know, it was safe for us to, to go to the local pizza joint, sit around the table and, and, and share a meal, even if it was just for a half an hour for an hour or however long we, we might be there and, and feel some sense of community and feel some sense of togetherness with one another. You know, that's, that's denied to us now. We, we can't do it. And, you know, you can't have in most places more than six people at your table unless they all, you all live in the same household and that sort of thing. And, and I get why they're doing it. I'm not questioning why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. It's just odd, you know, that, that warmth and that connection that we want with one another. Um, we can't, we just can't get it right now uh, until this kind of slows down. Yeah, we're, we're all put in this peculiar situation of wanting to but not wanting to, which which is bizarre. And we can only hope for that level of safety to return because I, I agree with you, Rich. People want to get back to that. We, we need to get back to that. You know, we do. Um, it, it's interesting. So one of the things that we've noticed now in, in uh, because people can't, be together right now. Um, there's still a hunger for information and still uh, an interest in being together even apart. Um, so I'm hearing and talking with a lot. Of, I've seen a lot of creative ways of bringing people together. I've been on a lot of different phone calls and listening on some webcasts. And and people really seem to be appreciating having the opportunity to to hear somebody else from outside of the organization talk, or you know, not having to talk to a customer about why a project or a shipment might be a little bit off. So we're seeing some nice traction. I, I think you know in those areas, and it's making everybody feel pretty good. FCSI is doing. Um, happy hours, you know, on Wednesdays, and I've been out with the consultants, and it's great to listen and talk with them. NAFM has a, a weekly webcast that I've been listening in on. And, and we as a publication still have our previously scheduled um, slate of webcasts that, that, are, that are out there. Uh, so, for example, in September, uh, we're doing our annual food safety webcast. 
and we're going to look at food safety and, uh, you know, in a time of takeout delivery and grab and go. And this is one of those topics that was even important. It was growing in importance prior to COVID. Now that so much is being done by takeout and delivery right now, it's even more important. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not real. Everybody thinks it's super easy to, to shift from being an on-premises dining provider to someone that does only takeout and delivery. And that's not really the case. So we have, um, we have a couple operators and one food service equipment supplies dealer coming on to kind of share best practices on how to set up your space, how to pick your packaging, you know, all those sorts of things. Because the staging, the queuing and knowing what tools to use is pretty is pretty challenging. So that'll be September 15th. And that's a mm. that's a free that's a free webcast. All you need to do is sign up and you can listen to it for free. The other one we have then in October, we're launching um, our Fed. Uh, we call it our Fed, our food service equipment design. Thought Leadership Summit, and that'll take place uh, over the lunch hour on uh, each Tuesday in October. And in the, the first three, we'll feature three speakers on each day. They'll be giving 10 to 12 minute presentations, thought leadership style presentations about the food service industry and where they're at. And then there'll be a little bit of a Q&A after that. And then the very last one, um, we're having a more of a forecast or look ahead. Where do we go from now? Kind of conversation with uh, representatives from the NPD group and from the National Restaurant Association. So we'll have some of their thought leaders kind of looking ahead. And we think that's that's a really great opportunity as well um, to kind of kind of provide some framework or some food for thought to kind of get people thinking about what might come next. And then in November, we're also going to do um, our the Restaurant of the Future webcast. And all this stuff is kind of pre-planned, um, but we're, we're looking basically at, you know, how's it going to evolve? You know, I think one of the most interesting things that we're seeing in the food service industry today, so many places, when you used to design a food service operation or a restaurant, if you will, the food was really designed to flow in one direction came in on the loading dock and it either went out in somebody's belly because they ate it in the in the dining room or maybe they got it to go order, right? <laughs> the only two foods that were really set up to flow, you know, flow out multiple directions were pizza and Chinese food. Everything else has really been it's really kind of been one directional flow. Now with with third party delivery, on premise dining, people wanting to order, for example, um, and, and pick it up on their way home for either curbside delivery or grab it on their own, grab and go. Um, you know, even in third party and in-house delivery, all these people are showing up in, in restaurants um, and they require, you know, they have different sets of requirements and different sets of expectations. So food is flowing in all sorts of different directions. So from our perspective, I, I found that completely fascinating. And that's one of the things I think we really want to explore in the restaurant in the future. How do you manage food flowing in, in multiple ways? So COVID stinks. We all agree. Mm -hmm. Um you know, and, and I'm sorry, I, I'd rather write about everyone's success and how great things are going. But um, from an editor's perspective, it's given me no shortage of content and different things to write about and consider. So um, it's taken an already very interesting and engaging industry and, and, and really, really amplified that. Well, one thing I, I think I'm um, feeling pretty sure of is once our industry, I think, gets a firm direction or a firm target, I think right now things have been moving so fast, you just don't know which what's coming next, like you said. But once we start getting a better uh, direction and a, a, a way to go, understanding what the game is going to be, our industry is incredibly creative. They will come up with solutions, we will adapt, and we'll get back, I think, to business, it's just going to take a while, but I'm I'm looking forward. I, I know that the creativity in our in our industry is there. You can see it already with the way people have have managed some of this early on, and and just doing a phenomenal job of trying to keep their businesses going and working in the industry. I can tell you that from a restaurant that did maybe five percent to goes to ramping up to almost at one point one hundred percent to go orders takeout order, um, that changes the whole dynamic in the kitchen, and it is. You adapt. You you just make it work, and I'm I'm sure we'll come out. And we'll we'll do all that. So, it'll be an interesting time. Yeah, I think for sure. And I think too. I think that you you bring up a, an interesting point. The stat. One of the stats I read today from uh, the NPD group said that in February, before all the the, the dining room shutdowns, but before, basically in February, before we became a nation of ghost kitchens, your average full service restaurant was doing about 19 percent of its um, revenue was off premises. Well, you went from 19% to 100% in a matter of 72 hours in most cases. Hmm. So the change, it, how do you, it, the way you adapt labor, the way you adapt menu, the way you adapt flow and structure in, in the whole nine yards, it's amazing. 
Uh, and some of them just weren't set up to do it. Some of them got really creative. You know, we've seen some of the fine dining places here in Chicago, um, you know, put these kits at home that you can actually bring their food home and finish it in your right. kitchen um, and have a super high quality meal experience. We did that here in Chicago with, with one of them with some friends. Um, and, and, and I thought that worked out really well. I, I think the thing that inspires me the most is when I do see um, when, when I do see members of the food service industry working with each other um, mm-hmm. on different approaches, different ideas. Um you know, to, to overcome it. There's a boutique wine shop here in my neighborhood that has like, they had a wine bar in it. And, uh, what they started doing is they started offering, um, they started offering, um, they started offering, uh, like uh, a French market in where they're, you know, cause they couldn't serve people on premises. Anymore. Mm-hmm. So they created a French market with a, with a local produce provider. So now instead of going into the big box grocery store, you can walk up the street and get pretty high quality, you know, produce and some other stuff in that work. Or they started working with another person to come up with, you know, heat and serve meals that you could take. There's a catering company up the street that's doing some stuff like that now as well. Pretty good meals that you can walk up to their window on Thursday, Friday and Saturday and buy that. Um, and I think that type of creativity is really what's inspiring to me and what I think is really going to serve the industry well, I think, as you know, as it moves forward, as it tries to get out of this this mess. Yeah. Well, I think that creativity is a reflection of the, the love and passion of the people for the industry. And then also the love that the customers have for their favorite places. It's been a very supportive back and forth. And it's really heartwarming to see what people are doing to help each other out, what people in the food or service industry are doing to make sure that others are being fed, you know, that they're sacrificing their best interests for that of others. And it's become uh, reciprocal. That, that is something that uh, a robot can't do. And uh, it, won't be, it won't be replaced. And that's the thing that'll keep driving it to return to what it was. Absolutely. I know my mom's restaurant... Uh... The customers there have been so fantastic, and understanding that a server went from you know in dining, in house dining to uh, to goes and and pickups and the the tips sometimes don't always didn't always flow as much when you did that previously, but now people are understanding that servers generally make less than the federal uh, minimum wage, and they you know the majority by of a long shot <laughs> right is is yeah. gratuity. So the people have been fantastic, and I think recognizing the work that goes into our industry and appreciating the people and trying to trying to do what they can to help these people out. So it's it's been a fantastic uh, uh, testament to people's caring and uh, trying to help one another. It really sure. has. A lot of good stuff has come out of it. So, Joe, one thing I, w- I would like to ask you is, do you have maybe a top three or favorite article that you've written or one that's gotten the most traffic or the, that's gotten celebrated the most, something that stands out in your memory as being a pinnacle moment in in your writing career. Sorry to put you on the spot here. <laughs> He's like, that would have been a good one to give me a heads up on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't even have to be your favorite or just a memorable one. Memorable one that we did. Um, you know, I'm going to... Maybe when you got some pushback on, maybe it was oh, interesting. Or... <laughs> Easier to think of those, is it? Well, <laughs> Yeah, how much time do you have on that? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I I'll say that um, you know one of the things that um, go back to really really early and in, in, um, in, in well I, I guess you know we did a one of the ones for so for FNS um, I'll answer this two ways first with FNS probably one of the ones that was pretty rewarding to me was when uh, Clark Food Service Clark Associates was our dealer of the year. Uh, going a few years back. And that was a really interesting story to write because a lot of people really didn't know. All they knew is that they, they owned Webstrat store and they were the big, they were the 600 pound gorilla, the fast growing 600 pound gorilla in the industry. You know, and to be able to, to, to tell that story and make people realize that this is a company that's a pretty dynamic organization. It's doing a lot of things well, and there's a lot of things that people can learn from them um, was pretty rewarding. There was a few people who said, I said, just, you know, they were like, how could you, how could you make them feel of the air? And I'm like, well, because they're, they're an interesting company and they do some things really well. And I said, just read it. And if you don't agree with me when we're done, then, then I'll take the conversation. And they came back, a lot of people came back and said, wow, that's really amazing. 
Um, you know, so I think a lot of those people stories that we write about sharing their story for success and their philosophy, uh, to me, I think has been really, really important. But probably the story that, that, that comes to mind that I've written just in general goes all the way back um, to around 1990, I would guess, when I was just a reporter out of, high, out of college, I should say. And uh, I did a story about how this one family, uh, they had a very, a, they avoided some significant personal tragedy where it was fall right around Thanksgiving and, you know, the leaves fall and all that sort of thing. And um, this young the young man and his father were, were raking the leaves and the, and the young man thought it'd be funny to hide in the leaves so dad couldn't find him and dad didn't realize it. Dad had kind of started to back the car down the driveway and he accidentally rolled over his side. Hmm. And the fact that they were able to be home and they fixed the whole problem and for what was really, you know, we talk about Thanksgiving, but they was really the true meaning of Thanksgiving. They had a lot to be thankful for and to be able to kind of tell that story. I think people really kind of loved it. So that was I don't know, kind of corny, but that was one of my favorites for sure. Yeah. Well, I think one of the most powerful things a writer can do is change someone's mind. It's more it's more difficult now than ever on social media. You've never seen anyone change their perspective in the comments section. I don't think I've ever seen that. It's it's hard enough just to find people being civil. You're exactly right. And, and, and the challenge, no, nobody wants to be challenged. You know, we actually what we really want is affirmation that we're doing it right. Yeah. You know, that we made all the right choices and that sort of thing. And I kind of miss the old days of you know when they call up the smoke filled rooms and the politicians and the cigars and the scotch and you know, doing some doing some wheeling and dealing back there that maybe we compromised a little bit more. Now it's uh, in in our politics, it's it's a zero sum game. We all have to win no matter what, and we approach articles or social media or anything along those lines, Justin, to in in very much the same way. I'm a hundred percent right. Doesn't matter, you know. And I, for one, like some good healthy debate. Yeah, right. It makes life interesting, you know. <laughs> How else are you going to learn, though? I mean, if you're living in an echo chamber your whole life, uh, yep. you're not growing. You're not growing. You need you need to be challenged, and you need to challenge others so that we can all grow together. I 100% right. agree with you there. Yeah. What's interesting is I hear a lot of people talk like we're talking here, that there's got to be this compromise, and there's there's times where I'm not right, and you change your mind and all this, but yet I'm not seeing a lot of it. I'm, I don't want to get into politics too much, but it, it is – it's not a good trend that we are in right now with that stuff. Anyway, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> uh, guys, unfortunately, I do think it is uh, time to wrap things up for this episode. Joe, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, great getting to know you a little bit and insight into uh, the magazines and, and your insight into the industry and some of the topics we've we've covered. Really appreciate it. Thank you again for that. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, you know, it's nice to especially we're not able to, to be together at conferences and trade shows and, and all that sort of stuff. So a chance to connect and just talk about the industry and life in general a little bit, I think was, was great. So thank you. Yeah. Great. Great. Agreed. So we always like to ask our guests on the show as we're going through our lives or our careers, if there's somebody that somewhere along the way said something to you that stuck and kind of drives you or you remember and, and keep it top of mind a quote or something like that. Do you have anything like that you could share with our listeners today? Sure. Yeah, I, I think I was kind of caught in the context of the day, right, with all the different things that, that we're writing and doing and, and so forth. And, um, you know, so I'm going to go to my quote by way of Blazing Saddles. Um, nice. You know, one <laughs> of the right. satirical movies of all time. This should be good. Um, and where the guy said, he quotes Nietzsche. Nietzsche. I always say that incorrectly, but, you know, the quote is, uh, through chaos comes order. And, you know, I think right now we're, it seems like we're in the midst of a lot of chaos. I think we are for, for a lot of different reasons. But I'm confident that, you know, within the food service industry, there's going to be some order that comes out of it. We're going to we're going to really elevate the players that, that are doing the right things. And there might be a little bit of shakeout. I don't mean that to be too, too cold, but I, I think we're going to emerge with a new order, the way consumers want to act, interact with uh, food service operators, the way they want to use it. And operators, I think, are going to have a great opportunity to, to, to approach their businesses in a different way. If you're running any kind of a business, whether you're an operator, a dealer, a manufacturer, a consultant, and you're ever looking for a mandate to, to, that says it's okay to change or to update what you're doing, I think this is it. So I think we're going to have a new order here in the not so distant future. Yeah, I love that. That's one of my favorite quotes, too. No, I think you're right. We're already yeah. seeing that, and um, 
there'll be uh, some changes that we'll be living with for sure. So thank you. Excellent for that. Justin, any closing thoughts from you today? Yeah, I would like to once again remind everyone to please hit that subscribe button. Never miss another moment with a chef or industry professional again. And leave us a review. We'd greatly appreciate that. Let us know how we can improve. Okay, great. And to everyone listening, I I do hope you enjoy the show. And as always, if you have any thoughts about a topic we've covered or ideas that you'd like to see us discuss on the show, please visit us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And also, as I like to end every show, a little quote of my own. Just don't worry about the other guy and what they're doing. Just focus on what you do best and no one's going to beat you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, take care.